This is Dan Gore. Welcome to the Icons Podcast. For more than 30 years, I've been involved in the art of female impersonations and celebrity impersonations. I've worked with some of the most amazing performers in our history. I've traveled around the world, producing and directing shows for corporate events, casting for TV and movies. But most impressive of all is getting to know some of the most amazing people ever to grace our industry. Best known to many as the art of drag. I've worked with and become friends with some of history's finest that have paved the way for many of today's current and upcoming performers. This is our chance to learn more about our drag history. This is Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. I'm so excited to welcome a dear friend of mine, someone that's been in the industry for decades, a veteran, and someone that I've admired for a long time. You know, when I first started doing impersonations of George Michael, one of my first national magazines I appeared in was next to this gentleman. And I'm so excited to have him on the show today. So please welcome Mr. Jimmy James. Hi, Jimmy. Hello, everybody. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I have to run to get my my nephew from uh, his job. They let him out early. He was supposed to get out at nine. They let him out early, so I have to go pick him up really quick and bring him to the house. Oh, so is that what you're doing now? You're at Uber? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, for my nephew. The bitch knows how to drive. She hasn't gotten her license. He, I should say he. He just came out, though. I have a, I have a mini-me, even though he's taller than me. And she wants to do drag. Oh, God, what has happened See, to this world? Look, look where you started. <laughs> She's ready to be on RuPaul's Drag Race and everything. All right. Is it everybody? <laughs> <laughs> My father wants to be on RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> so do you remember, you know, I know I spoke, when I introduced you, I spoke of that Advocate article. Do you remember the Advocate article? I'm, you were in dozens, if not hundreds of articles, but there was an Advocate article that came out. It had you, me, and El Kenna in it. I don't was, remember. <laughs> I know, of course you don't. <laughs> For me, <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> uh, I think it was. That? I think it was eighty nine, nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, that was a whirlwind time for me. So tell me, let, let's talk about, I, I think you're originally from Texas, right? Is that where you grew up? I was born in Laredo, raised in San Antonio. I, um, yeah, it was just, yeah, I'm from, I'm from Texas, Southwest. When you were growing up in Texas, did you, were you a, t- a fan of TV? Did you watch TV? Oh, yeah. Well, I watched um, the Flintstones and Jefferson, the, the Jeffersons? No, wait. The Jetsons, I'm sorry. And I was enthralled with all that. And then I graduated to Bewitched, Maud, and uh, you know what I never got into, which is weird? I never really got into the Golden Girls. Is that weird? (laughs) I I felt like, I don't want to talk about being old right now because I was so young. I'll deal with being old when I'm old. I don't want to, I want to be young right now. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're watching all these TV shows, is there anyone that inspires you? Like Bewitched, there might've been some sort of drag type of characters on there that might've inspired you at that time. Yeah. Well, Bewitched was her magic. I was like, oh my God, the magic. And I always worked hard to try to twitch the nose. And uh, also I Dream of Jeannie was another one that I was inspired by. I love Lucy, of course. And then I like that show Fame. And I first fell in love with the movie and then they had the television version of Fame. And I was like, oh, I want to be in that school for the performing arts. I want that. I want that so badly. Had you been, oh. had, had you had aspirations to be in show business? Like, was there a sp- certain moment when you're growing up, you said, oh gosh, I want to do something like that on TV. I want to do, you know, I want to become someone that I'm looking at now. Yeah, but 
it was just a faraway dream. I never, ever thought I could be in show business. It was too far away. But I was, I thought I might be a teacher. Eventually, I got a scholarship to dance from the Kathy Marfin School here in San Antonio, where I'm at right now. I got a scholarship to dance. And I thought I would be the next Nijinsky. And then I thought, no, you know, that's never going to happen. So then I studied theatrical makeup in college. And I also was the head makeup person in my high school because I always looked like a little child. I always looked so young for my age. I mean, right now I'm 85 years old. You can see <laughs> I look like about 45, but um, I always loved makeup because it could transform you. I was fascinated by transformation. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm never going to be in show business. I'm going to be a makeup artist. I think that's the closest I could ever get. So I had dance class experience and I had makeup experience when in the early 80s, maybe 1980, I think, I was in the B. Dalton's bookstore and I picked up the book, Life Goes to the Movies. And I opened it up and saw a picture of Marilyn Monroe. And because I was a makeup artist and because I worked a lot with my own face to experiment with all kinds of old age makeup and prosthetics, and I knew the shape of my face so well, and when I saw Marilyn's face, I thought, oh, that's strange. She has a kind of a similar facial structure to mine. And I didn't know about Marilyn because I knew more about Sonny and Cher. I knew about Diana Ross and the Supremes. I, I knew about like Janis Joplin, but I didn't, I just always knew people kept mentioning Marilyn all the time. You know, I knew about Jim Bailey and I saw him on The Tonight Show. And when I saw Jim Bailey doing live Judy Garland, a man? Wait, right. that's a man dressed as Judy Garland and he's singing live? Do you remember yeah. what year you saw Jim Bailey? What year it you had to be, It must have been in the 70s. And was and that on the, 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 the late show? I, a few of the other interviewers, <laughs> interviewees I spoke to, they, they would see him on the Merv Griffin show or the Mike, Mike uh, Thomas, I think it was, show. Mike you, Douglas? Mike Douglas, yes. Mike, I believe it was Johnny Carson. Was there any connection then when you saw him, you were just fascinated with him or you were thinking, wow, that's something I'd like to do? Any, any sort of aspirations? Well, to that me, at that moment, he blew the roof off because, you know, I kind of thought, well, men, actors play male roles and then females play the female roles. When I saw Jim Bailey, because I had a baby face, because I had a girl's face, I saw an opportunity, like a, I could see a chance that maybe I had a chance where I didn't have to play boy parts that I never fit into. Maybe I could play girls' parts, but that was way, you know, I was, I don't know what, I must have been 12 years old. I don't know. This had to have been in the 70s. Had you seen any other female impersonators on TV prior to you experimenting yourself with, with? Not really. And I know Charles Pierce was working around, but I didn't, I didn't know about Charles, Charles Pierce at that point. Um, were you singing in high school at all? When did you realize that you could possibly have a voice? I always sang as a child and in high school, I, I was in musicals. I had a knack for singing but well, and doing was, voices. How about in the musicals in high school? Do, do you remember the first musical you were in? And you get your gun, Fiddler on the Roof. I played the Russian singer in the bar. He goes, oh, Nasta, Nastro. I don't even, <laughs> I can't remember the song, but I, here I am like a little teenager with a big like, tenor voice coming out like belting i don't know i look like i i'm sure people thought it was a little lesbian trying to be a russian singer <laughs> but, 
How about your family? So when did you realize that you might be different? Like, did, were you always felt different? I mean, besides wanting to be an impersonator, did you feel that you might be different as far as being? Well, here's the weird thing. You know, I do so many voices in my show. You know, Cher, Patsy Cline, Judy Garland, Billie Holiday, Eartha Kitt, Betty Davis. And if you even added Elvis. You know, I got all these, like, talents for singing. Nobody in my family sings. Nobody. And I have a large family. On my dad's side was 14 kids. My mom's side is 12 kids. Can you imagine? Nobody sings. <laughs> Nobody. I was like, yeah, I was weird. I was the only one who sang. It's so bizarre. I'd love to have like a family partner that like, we could do duets or something, but <laughs> it doesn't exist in my family. It's the most bizarre thing. I also don't sing in front of my family because I think it's so weird that I know how to sing and nobody else does. So oh. strange. So you see Jim Bailey on TV. When was the first time you actually see a female impersonator in person? As soon as I was old enough to get into a bar, I went into a gay bar with friends, of course. And do you remember what, see it. what bar you were at? It was Sunset Boulevard in San Antonio. I think that's what it was called. And there was a big, tall, black diva queen. Her name was Lady T. And she was magnificent. And she came out, you know, to do her number. Come with me tonight. All across the universe. We will sail for the sky. So I was like, mesmerized and then because then it gets into the fast point yes and and i was like it was at that point now i was i don't know 21 years old because you have to be 21 to get into the bar and so i was 21 and i just had a vision i was like i could ever do a song that drag queens would want to lip sync to i would think it would be everything. I didn't know that I was writing. I was like writing my future. I didn't know that it was a premonition that that was actually going to happen to me. Because when Fashionista finally got released, YouTube had already been invented. And we started to see drag queens around the world lip syncing to Fashionista. And it was like, oh my God, my premonition came true wild and for the people that are listening so we're, we're we fast forwarded a bit we're talking about jimmy's single that he uh, one of his big hits he had as a as himself singing and that was called fashionista that's what jimmy's referring to so when you after you saw that female impersonator lady t at that point did you think you wanted to be in drag or did you it took a few more years before you realized that this might be something i wasn't inspired to do drag but i was inspired by what jim bailey was doing that to me was more fascinating because remember, I always looked like a girl. So for me to just get in drag was no challenge. This, for me to get in drag is no challenge. I have to have a premise, a purpose, a reason. Am I acting a part? Am I, what, why am I in drag? Just to look like a girl because I already looked like a girl. So for me, drag was just linear. It was just, it's just stayed in one place impersonate somebody give an audience a feeling of what it must be like to be in the room with a character then i felt like i was accomplishing something and when you opened that book you know and saw the picture of marilyn and realized that you had similar facial structure as marilyn at what point did you try to do makeup and try to look like her was there a moment where like oh i'm going to spend this day or this evening to try to paint myself as marilyn yeah what i did was um 
I did a lot of late night test shoots. Remember the old cameras with the little square bulb and you had to turn it and you take a, a selfie and then <laughs> yeah, you turn, turn the, the bulb, bulb. <laughs> and then you take another selfie and then you got to take it to Fox <laughs> Photos. <laughs> I took it to Fox Photos and drove through as a little kiosk yeah. in a parking like lot yes. and you drop off your negatives and then, uh, or you drop, you drop off the camera. Thing. Yeah. 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 The, yeah, the, the, the camera. The, the, and, and, and then they, and then, and then three days later you get your film. So <laughs> it was a long process of studying. I had to study Maryland back then. I have to say no YouTube, no internet. So I had to do a lot of work, a lot of hard work. Interesting you say that though, because that's one of the reasons why I want to do these podcasts is because so many of the people that paved the way, like yourself and the other people I've interviewed, you know, they, there was no reference. They, mm -hmm. you know, there, there was books and there was, mm -hmm. there was seeing mm -hmm. other entertainers, but so many of you guys would just practice and figure out how to perfect your craft without looking at anything. You know, it was, it, during our generation and towards the later I would say like the 90s as, as the gay movement progressed, did we have like the Kevin O'Coin books or these books or, or how to uh, look like somebody else. The makeup books would come out. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's really remarkable that you guys were able to go in, you know, the hard work you put in instead of just Googling it and finding a video of how to look like Marilyn. You know, I mean, you had to really... Yeah. Back then, there was three channels. Everything shut down at midnight. All the channels <laughs> went out at midnight. And you would hope to pray, like, if anyone could play a documentary about the person you were trying to impersonate. So, you know, there's more footage of Judy Garland performing than there was of Marilyn, mm, sure. really. You'd have to wait for a movie if they showed it. They didn't show her movies that much. And then in college, there was the Marilyn Monroe Film Festival. And I was already deep into my studies of Marilyn, so... I went to all the, that's where I got to see her films that was at college in at San Antonio College at a Marilyn Monroe Film Festival. And they had saw that Seven Year Itch and Gentlemen Prefer Blonde and The Misfits. And I started to study her, her kind of like personality somehow through her characters. And I tried to capture something that like now we can go on YouTube and we can hear interviews or watch interviews of her how she was interacting with people. I didn't have that. I had to look, dig really hard as to what she was like because I wanted to recreate her in a way that if I just walked into a room, it was Marilyn Monroe walking into a room and she would just act naturally, not like, oh, hi, my name is Marilyn. No, I wanted her to be like, just natural. And what, what age and what year are we looking at when you decide that you really want to create some sort of likeness to Marilyn and do an act as Marilyn Monroe? Around 1980. How old were you there? <laughs> yeah, cunt. Three, three, three years old? <laughs> cunt, bitch, four. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're in college or high school? That You're in college. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm already in college. And do you start developing this act on your own or do you have someone that's actually assisting you and say, oh, you should do this or do that? Since you don't have any references like we do today. I would ask people who were big fans of Marilyn, like if I went out on Halloween as Marilyn, <laughs> all good queens are born on Halloween. I, I would try it out, take it out for a spin, get critiques from people. And I was always open to critiques, always. Because I wanted to hear how people perceived Marilyn. What did they think of Marilyn? And I'll tell you one time I was getting some fabric in a shop here in San Antonio. You know, and I told a little uh, Japanese woman 
that I was planning to impersonate Marilyn Monroe. And she said, oh, I saw Marilyn when I was a little girl. I said, you did? She said, yes, she came to Japan with Joe DiMaggio and I saw her. I saw her in person is what she said. And I said, what was your impression of her? And she said, oh, Marilyn was so cute. And I thought, here she is, Marilyn Monroe, the, the larger than life sex symbol. And a little girl who's like five years old says that Marilyn was so cute. I never forgot that. And I was like, that's a masterclass right there. In all my studies, I realized there were two people. There was Norma Jean and there was Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe is how you look and Norma Jean is the persona that comes out of you. So I played two parts. I had to play Norma Jean, natural, cute, um, smiling or or vulnerable. And then Marilyn Monroe was the outer shell. So Norma Jean got in drag as Marilyn Monroe. And so that is the point of which I found the best way to play Marilyn. Because I had to make her a real person. I can't just make her like, oh, hi, my name's Marilyn. It's yours. Like, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to massacre her, her image, her persona. And she's so beloved. I wanted to have pay respect to her, you know, and, and be just really adorable and sweet and lovable and vulnerable all at the same time. But in a way, she she's like, there's like a wink in the eye and says, I know what I'm doing. I'm dressed as Marilyn Monroe. Come with me for the ride. When I, so in my impressionable years, you know, when I'm in the, just falling into the impersonation thing, you know, it's when I first saw you and I saw you on the Donahue show. I saw the Queens on the Donahue show, and of course, and I saw the Queens on the Geraldo show, and then the Sally show. I think at the time the Donahue show came, you were in a show already, in a legitimate, if you will, female impersonator show uh, when you appeared oh, on yeah. Donahue. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When when Donahue was May 1987. I think I was 15 years old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I was on Donahue, May 1987. I had been fired from Lacage in Atlantic okay. City. So before you get into that, tell me how, how did you get involved in Lacage, and then we'll of course that and how long was that stint with Lacage in Atlantic City, correct? Or were you in a different location as well? Yeah, it was Atlantic City, but I auditioned at the Lacage in Los Angeles. They flew me out to LA to audition because again, no internet, no no click on this link. They actually <laughs> bought me an airplane ticket, put me in a hotel, and. Uh, and how and how'd you how'd you hear about the uh, the show? Did another queen tell you about it? Or? Oh, you know, because back then, what was it? Telephone, telegraph, telequeer. I don't know. It was like <laughs> a fun thing we used to say. Telegay. I don't know. Well, we all talked amongst each other. We knew the show was going on uh, in West Hollywood. Lacage was like legendary. All the stars went to go see them. And Gypsy was the MC of the show at Lacage in Los Angeles. And I went there to audition. I won the audition, but I didn't know. I loved Los Angeles when I went there. I just fell in love with LA. And then they shipped me to fucking Atlantic City. <laughs> <laughs> For two years, oh my God. I've, at first, like we started our contract out like in the summer in Atlantic City and you know, it's hopping and jumping in the summer and then the winter comes and it dies and you want to die right along with it. It was so, so depressing. Had you been in a legitimate show like that already? Had you done any sort of performing in the gay bars before you joined the cause? Yeah, I had like, I, I, I did a little Texas tour of the gay clubs 
around Texas. And I just used, I remember flying into Abilene. Honey, you don't know. When you fly a little puddle jumper airplane into Abilene and you see how flat, and I'm sure, you know, that was ancient years ago, 35, 37 years ago. I don't know what Abilene looks like now, but it was, I was like, there's got to be a better way than this. <laughs> I just can't be playing these little podunk little gay bars. I, I need to do something more than this. So I got the job in Atlantic City, and I am grateful for that because it was my first real sh- kind of show business job. And who uh, was it? Who, what, uh, what other legends, veterans of this art form were in that show? Do you remember? Larry Edwards was in the show. Uh, Jimmy D, who did Incredible Diana Ross. Larry Edwards did Tina Turner, I believe. There was Kenny Howard, who did Michael Jackson. Drew Taylor was the MC that did Joan Rivers, but Gypsy kind of kicked it off first. It was emceed by Gypsy, and then they recruited Drew Taylor to be the MC of the show, and she performed as Joan Rivers. I was promised in the con- I was promised that well, I guess it wasn't in writing, but I was promised by that producer that I'd get to sing live. It was a bait and switch, and I never got to sing live. And so for two years, I was just lip syncing. I want to be loved by you, and I was like kind of depressed and kind of like, well, you know what? I guess this is the best it's gonna be. I mean, I was in a big casino and I had never been in such a glamorous place like that. And I thought, well, I guess this is how it's gonna be. What year was this? The summer of 84. And how long were you in that show? Did you, did you perform? Because typically the acts would do two impersonations. Were you just doing the Marilyn one at that time, Marilyn Monroe? Yeah, yeah. Because I couldn't, I couldn't mess up the ma- the ma- Marilyn makeup was too specific, and I couldn't, I couldn't mess it up. So yeah, basically I just did Marilyn. So I did two minutes and forty seconds for each show. We did two shows a night for thirteen days a week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's all we did was hang out backstage. It was just awful. So I wanted to be grateful, but at the same time, I was like, oh my God, I don't know what happened. And I think, well, I think also that our destiny is kind of pre planned. So you weren't happy because you knew there was so much more for you. I think subconsciously beyond that. And that was just kind of like that moment. I'm also a creature of habit. Had I not been fired, I would have probably just stayed. I'm, I like the security and I'm scared. I'm shy. I don't know if I would have had the balls to like go and venture out. I started getting like, oh, here I am naive. I'm in my 20s and people wanted to interview me. I didn't, I just thought, okay. I didn't know you had to, you had to clear it with the producer. So I just did an interview because I was Jimmy James doing Marilyn Monroe and the Atlantic City Magazine wants to interview me. So I did an interview and I think that pissed off the producer. I don't really know why he fired me because he tried to rehire me. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not really sure why he fired me and neither does anyone else except, I don't know. I don't really know. I wasn't a bitch. I was not like, I'm Jimmy J. It wasn't like that at all. So amongst all the uh, the veterans of this business, you know, I've often talked about what happened at the last night in Atlantic City. So I know... I know, I know it was a stint that has forever, <laughs> has forever um, cemented in every drag queen's mind that's worked for a producer or someone they didn't like, you know, so. 
can you tell so, me? So obviously they, they tell you you're going to be let go and you had to fulfill Oh, yeah. And it came very easy. Oh, one little paragraph. Your services are no longer needed. And they were very smart because they were going to try to rehire me. Uh, I was only getting $600 a week. But still, that, back then, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah, I guess. But back then, when yeah. you're paying your, you have to pay your own rent. So dwindle it down further. And yep, you pay for everything. So I don't know. It never seemed like enough money to me. Do you have one night, good. one more show, or you have one more, a few more days of your contract, if you will, before you're let go? And what happens? What, what prompts you to create this? First stint? of all, they fired me right after income tax. So after I pay like $4,000 in income tax, now I'm broke. And so that's when I got fired is after income tax. And I was just like devastated. I don't have family in the East Coast. I don't have anything on the East Coast. Is this you know, what I year think, is this? 86, 85, 86? Yeah, 86, about April or May of 86. And so I'm on my own. I have my car that was driven up there for me. And now I got to think about driving my car back down to... San Antonio by myself. I don't know. It was weird. And so I had nothing to lose. I was fired. So in my routine, I would stand on a box at the after I want to be loved by you, poop, poop, pee, too. And the wind would blow the skirt up and then it'd go to blackout. So you see the Marilyn with her white dress blowing up. And that was my routine. And so but she has but, in the in the in the movie when that happens, she's got panties or some sort of lining. Oh yeah, underneath. And so her. I had strong support hose. They're like really strong, and then the panties were like girdle type kind of panties, like tight. And so you know you could like tuck everything away with sure. all the tightness. And then what I did was <laughs> I took my panties, and Joan was a woman that would pull the curtain ready for me to uh, like come out and perform. And then I told the, the curtain lady, Joan, I'll never forget. I said, she was a, she was a fun laughter kind of woman. We loved her. She was so much fun. And I said, honey, this is for you. And it was my panties. And she was like, her jaw dropped. She goes, what? I go, well, I just want you to have something to remember me by. What are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> Is what I told her backstage. And she was cracking up, like snorting, cracking up and trying to hold it in. She goes, no, you're not. I go, yeah, I am. And so keep in mind, I still have the support hose okay. that have this little panel underneath that like helps. But nonetheless... Uh, I didn't flash a penis to the audience. What I flashed was just like uh, <laughs> a eunuch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so what they saw was like panties. No penis was shown, okay. contrary to popular Yeah, contrary belief. to popular belief. I think people have embellished <laughs> on it because as I, as I heard it, you were naked. So that's, that's how I had originally heard it. So I'm like, oh my God, that's ballsy. Yeah, I know it's grown into bigger <laughs> things, but trust me, they didn't really see a penis. And the, 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 the uh, producer, who shall rename, remain nameless, was a, he was like a, had a French accent, really scuzzy shystery guy uh, <laughs> just mumbling is like what are you gonna do fire me <laughs> so onward to bigger and better things so then you get you yeah. eventually make your way back to san antonio again. no i didn't oh i didn't because my good friend larry edwards i can say it now 
because I didn't want to divulge this because Larry was still working with Lacage in Atlantic City, but Larry gave me two phone numbers in Provincetown. One of them like rejected me and the other one, Phyllis Schlossberg, is the one I, I sent her a tape as well, a videotape demo, and she couldn't believe it was me singing live. And I did Marilyn, I did Judy Garland, I did Cher and Billie Holiday and Eartha Kitt and Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond, you don't bring me flowers or something like that. And, and I, uh, and she was like beside herself and she didn't have room because her summer was already booked at the Pilgrim House in Provincetown. But she says, you know what? I can squeeze you in, in the, in the lounge and da da da. So I went there around Memorial Day of 86 and I showed up as Marilyn Monroe and then somebody canceled because AIDS was going on and one of the Queens, I think his name was Alan Lazito fell ill and of course eventually died but I never met him but so she gave me the seven o'clock time spot in the main performance room underneath the pilgrim house I started selling out from the beginning from the and then I saw how much money I was making and uh, but for singing live and 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 looking like Marilyn singing live and I was like never again will I ever go back to lip stinking in a show <laughs> ever again because they took my power away. When my power was in singing live, that was stripped away from me. And they made sure to keep me muzzled and not let me sing live because then they could control me. And so I was my own producer and I was making all my own money and lots of it. And I was like, oh my God, this is a whole new world. And then that producer would grovel trying to hire me back. Sure, sure. Oh my So you God. had this show when you went to Provincetown. When did you, prior to that, when did you start developing these voices? Was that something you're doing during the day while you're working yeah. at Lacage or? Remember when I was doing my little tour in Texas? I was too insecure to do a one hour show of Marilyn. I was like, I can't do an hour of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, to me, that seemed like it'd be too boring. Like, so I did, I, I devised an act of like Marilyn, like a 20 minute act. And then I would leave the stage and change to be kind of androgynous. And then I'd come out to do the voices. So it was always Marilyn and voices. It wasn't just Marilyn. So Marilyn's the one that got on all the TV shows and everything. But the, there was a second part of the show that was all the voices that I would do. And um, so I didn't always get to show that on TV. You, you had already developed that show prior to going yeah. to Atlantic City. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you go to Provincetown, you make a ton of money as they do there. Yeah. And then after that, do you finally return to San Antonio or? I drove back to San Antonio with a bunch of money, so happy and so proud. And that producer still kept calling me to come back. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I will never work for you again. What you did to me was so nasty. And I'm free now. I'm liberated. Like, it's like being a slave and then being <laughs> emancipated. I mean, what are you going to do? Go back to being a slave or stay emancipated? I think we want to stay emancipated. How soon after that you start developing like these larger tours? Because I saw you at the Cinegrill in Los Angeles, and that was after all the TV shows. So it do just a much larger. Yeah, the Cinegrill. <laughs> the Cinegrill was like eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. So these larger tours, and eventually you travel abroad too as well, don't you? I did a little bit, but I haven't done a lot of Europe. I had an agent who was going to book me European tours, but then he got a heart attack and he died. He was the same agent that uh, represented Craig Russell. From Canada, I believe, right? From Canada, yeah. yeah. I never really had a European connection. I've worked in Europe just 
only a few times, but the few times that I have done it, it's been pretty remarkable. So you start developing this much bigger show. So when was your first, you had to have some sort of big tour where you did several states, I assume. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, after I got on Donahue, which was May of 87. Which was remarkable. Uh, that was such a great, that was such a great performance and such a great interview. And that just blew the lid wide open. Yeah. What happened was that it was back in the day, like Donahue, it was before Oprah. So Donahue was the Oprah of his day. Like everybody watched Donahue. So when I got on Donahue, it blew the lid wide open. And once I played on Donahue in the, the May of 87, my first year in P-Town was 86. So in 80, May of 87, I did Phil Donahue. Oh my God, it was like gangbusters, like gay clubs around the country, private parties. I was doing Provincetown, of course. Just my whole world exploded and opened with Donahue. And then I got calls to be on Geraldo and Sally Jesse and Joan Rivers and CNN and a lot of shows. It was great. It was like the talk shows was the great variety show back then. And that's how people saw you. That's how, obviously, that's what happened with Donahue and you, you would get booked. Yeah. I know when I saw you, I saw you with Bubba. So is Bubba someone that you toured with a lot? And Bubba was like an opening act or a fellow friend, I assume, at the time that you worked with? He or? was a friend. Yeah, Bubba was a friend who I called upon. Another recommendation from Larry Hot Chocolate, Larry Edwards, said, why don't you, because I needed somebody to kind of MC my show because I needed somebody to entertain the audience while I changed out of Maryland and into the glitzy boy look to do all the voices. Larry recommended Bubba McNeely and we became good friends and he had a great energy and he could take control of everything. And eventually he was like my tour manager. He was my manager. He, my right-hand person for all my touring and, and even booking the show because we got shystered by some shystery agents. And I said, Bubba, I'll just pay you the commission why don't you just book this? We can do this ourselves, you know? It's funny because everyone I speak to, we all have the stories. <laughs> we all have about the same Bubba? No, not about Bubba, about getting screwed some way, somewhere down the line. Eventually. Oh, God, so, yeah. <laughs> everyone has the same stories. Again, like there was no Facebook or no Google to check people out. You just had to go by their word. And honey, when they gave you their shystery word and you believed it, oh my God, and you get screwed, like they got deposits and I had to go play several gigs for no money because we wanted to be play, we didn't want to screw the clubs. So we went and played the gigs like for nothing, just to make good. Your most impressionable moment when you're doing like one of your Maryland shows, did you have celebrities come and see you in these shows on your tours at all? Yeah, back in the day, we had Jose Bear would come, Desmond Child, a great songwriter, Estelle Geddes, um, B. Arthur, of course, Charles Pierce, who was a lovely man. I miss him. He was so not Charles Pierce, a great impersonator. Back in the day, Lisa Hartman, remember? Yes, um, Dallas, Dallas. <laughs> I had <laughs> Sylvester. You make me feel body real. Sylvester, that was my idol. My idol came to see me. That meant everything to me. Um, eventually, in the years later, I performed for Elton John and Whoopi Goldberg and a lot of people like Patti LaBelle. I have a whole list of people that I've been with that I've performed for. And I tell people, those are not meet and greets of me meeting them. They're meeting me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't get They're started. Right, right. 
<laughs> yeah, now it's everyone. Everyone does the meet and greets and say, "Look who oh, met me!" Oh yeah, uh, the, oh yeah. You can say, like so, some queen. I'm sure could say, "Oh, that person was at my show." No, it wasn't, girl. You were at their show. It was a meet and greet. <laughs> so what many people don't remember, especially in today's day, and I want to talk about how this came about, was your billboard in Times Square. That was a huge, huge deal so it was because tell me tell um, me about how that came to be so i don't know many impersonators even today that i mean i have customers who are on the one of the marble men come to my club here and he was he had a big neon thing as the marble man in times square and the only other person i know with a billboard was in times square is you <laughs> and that well, was pretty insane even to in today's you you don't see a lot of that so tell me how the billboard Came about. It's one of my proudest things. They wanted me to to pose with Linda Evangelista to do Marilyn Monroe. They had an idea to have a Marilyn, a Judy Garland, and a Betty Davis. And I'm like, you know, I can do all three of those, right? And who, who's who's we? Is this a magazine? Tell me. Uh... It was the art director for Kenar. It was a clothing line. It doesn't exist anymore. K-E-N-A-R. It was a women's clothing line. And so they wanted me to do the Marilyn uh, and then somebody else to do Judy and somebody else to do Betty Davis. So I don't know why, but they didn't believe that I could do, they knew I could do Marilyn, but they didn't think I could do Betty or Judy. So they wanted me to do a test shoot. And um, I did Polaroid of the Judy and the Betty. And I got the job. They said, because I told them, I said, don't you think it would be amazing that all three of the characters is one person? You know, because that was my art direction head going. <laughs> But so, yeah, they agreed. And so who was the photographer? Was anyone like significant? Rocco La Spada, Charles yeah. de Rocco or and Charles La Spada, something like that. They were partners. La Spada de Rocco. So they used like their two names. La Spada so how, de Rocco. Did they find you or had you submitted through an ad that you saw pictures no. or how, how did it come about? They saw your show or they were remember? actually friends with my roommate in New York. I was living in New York City at the time. And I think they were friends with my roommate, a girl, and I think she told them about me. Again, no internet, nobody can Google you. So she must have sent them a picture of me as Marilyn because they, she heard they were looking to do a billboard like that with those three characters. She goes, well, you know, my roommate, Jimmy James, that's Marilyn Monroe. So they latched onto my Marilyn. They just weren't sure I could do the others. And then, so anyway, long story short, they agreed and I did all three. And so all, for me to do all three, I didn't meet Linda Evangelista that day because the whole day was spent shooting me and all three different personas. It was just a one day shoot? That's my next question, just a one day shoot. Yeah. A, lo a long day shoot, I suppose. It was a long day shoot, long. I shaved my eyebrows so that I could reshape them for each character. So each one had their different eyebrows. So I never, you know, would do, I never would shave my eyebrows, but I did it because I knew I had to have different eyebrows for everybody. So I just shaved them off and painted that. I could never do that again. I mean, it's hard <laughs> to put, eye, it's hard to do eyebrows straight. Like it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'd shave them again if they said, oh, we want to put another billboard in Times Square. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I would. That's what's so funny to me when people, oh, you know, when another reason why I want to do these podcasts because there's so many new up and coming acts and they always forget about, you know, the people that came before them and they don't, or they don't even research anything. And that's one of the things that I felt that always made me uh, progress myself is I'd always with Google, I'd always go on and see 
other shows or go out to other, you know, higher end shows and see what they're doing and try to better myself on what, and learn from the people that came before me, you know, and. Well, you know, me. you know what made me cry? I was watching the Ken Burns country music documentary on PBS and all the country music artists. It's so sweet. They always pay homage to the ones who came before them. And I'm sorry to say that doesn't happen in this drag world. It's like, <laughs> oh, honey, oh, honey, I invented drag. Who are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I'm sorry. There's still I mean, you still got the uh, you still got the record for the billboard in Times Square because I don't know anyone who's got <laughs> I mean, for, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I don't I don't know if there's anyone out there that's had a billboard in Times Square. And that one was fierce, fierce, fierce. So Thanks. Really. I think RuPaul did. I think RuPaul might have had a billboard, I think. Well that's But RuPaul. bitch, I did it first. <laughs> yeah, no. Plus <laughs> you're impersonating you're impersonating someone and uh, RuPaul's RuPaul always already became a star in his own right. But uh that uh, was pretty amazing. And did so when it did it when it went up, did you go out to Times Square and take a bunch of pictures underneath it or how'd that I have some video of it and I also flew my mom in from San Antonio and we have pictures just ask the random stranger. But here's the crazy thing. If you look at the pictures, oh my god, Times Square is like, uh, there's no one there. It's like empty. It's like Times Square used to be like, I don't know, it used to be an empty, it wasn't that populated. It's completely changed from 1996, 97. Back then, I mean, you literally, there's a picture of me and mom and there's like maybe one person behind us. And you can look down the road. Now it might've been thanks, it couldn't have been Thanksgiving because that would have been the Macy's Day Parade. So. Maybe it was close to Christmas time that I flew her up there. It must have been. But still, there was nobody on the street. It looked like evacuated, empty. <laughs> so you speak, <laughs> you speak of your mom. When did your mom first see you in drag? And was she shocked? Was that something that took a time for her to accept? Or was it eventually, was it just automatic? Yeah, she had, she had a little bit of shock. She's like a really devout Catholic lady and... Um, like I say, nobody in my family sings. Nobody performs. No, and I have a big family. <laughs> I mean, you'd think there'd be somebody who sang or played guitar or something. Yeah, she was a little shocked. But then I explained to her, Mom, I'm basically what I've always been, a character actor. I'm a character actor. So I'm playing the part of a character that suits me because who am I going to play? Like John Wayne, shoot him up characters. I mean, like I can't be, be like Tom Cruise or I can't be like, you know, it's just not my look. So I, I may do with what I had. You had seen Jim Bailey on TV. So did you ever get a chance? And I know you, you eventually knew and met, you know, Charles Pierce. When was the chance? Did you ever have a chance to see them perform? Jim Bailey was a little like, I felt, you know, I was so young and up and coming and he was already seasoned and he had already made his mark. But I guess in show business, you never feel like you're, you're, you've made your mark. I still want to do a documentary. I still want to write a book. I still want to do a lot of things. I want to do more things. So I feel like I've, I've never, I feel like I still have more to do. So I don't know. Jim Bailey seemed a little bit cold to me. But Charles Pierce was um, very warm, very sweet. He would even write to me cards and stuff. I didn't hold it against Jim Bailey. I just thought that that's what happens sometimes when you are trying to hold on to whatever you're trying to hold on to. And I remember telling Bubba, I said, 
I, t- I said, don't ever let me get like that. I don't <laughs> ever want I don't ever want to be like that. So I got to tell you a funny story then. So when I go and see you at the Cinegrill, you know, first of all, I'm very impressionable at the time. I think I was 20 or 21 and just saw you perform and seen you on TV. And then we were in that advocate article. That you have no idea what it is. But to me, that's like... <laughs> To me, I'm like going, oh my God, I'm getting this thing. I just know that he, I just, I just know that this guy knows who I am. If you ever find a copy, please take a photo of it and send it. I have it somewhere. I I will give it to you. And um, I think my mom has it. I have it somewhere. I will find it. And uh, so when I do meet you for the first time, boy, you just... (laughs) Was I mean? You were just so cold and couldn't be bothered. (laughs) Okay, but what did you say to me, bitch? First of all, what did oh, you say? Oh, nothing. I was just sitting there. I, I was sitting there. You even signed one of your posters. I was just in awe. And it was just, you know, because we expect so much. I think because we expect so much, like, more. And, you know, and now that I've grown and see how this all this works, I mean, you probably met, you know, 500 people that week. So, I mean, some of But little- do you think, okay, this is the problem I had. People would think I was cold and aloof because I was so shy. So was I co- really cold and aloof or was I just quiet? You're pretty aloof. I mean, even my friend was just telling me, oh, it's okay. You know, it's all right. I mean, I think more so that I was expecting so much more. And we are both, I mean, we're both aloof. I mean, I had the same issue when I was performing and people, oh, he's so stuck up and everything. I'm like, no, because I was shy. I don't want to. But now that I know you, it's just a full circle thing. And I, now I understand it far better. But I just thought it was funny because I did, I was a huge fan. And same with Elgin Kenna. Because yeah. on stage, I would be dynamic. Like on stage, I'm not shy. Um, and then offstage, Bubba would help to diffuse like my shyness because he could handle people when I couldn't because I just was not, I just what I was, I, I wasn't that warm to some people because the, everybody was a stranger to me until I got to know you. And he would tell people, <laughs> Jimmy takes a while to get to know you, but I'm sorry if I was uh, pulled a Jim Bailey on you. <laughs> But I'm sure there was a reason for it. No, I wasn't mean. I was just, I wasn't mean at all. I was in awe. I was like, I wanted to take, I felt, you know, when that article came out, I mean, as we all feel one time, I felt like I had made it and I was surrounded. I was booked in by these amazing performers, you know, Elgin and yourself. I was just in awe and I'm like, oh my God, we're going to go on tour together. <laughs> and, where did, and where did we meet? I don't, I mean, oh, I met you after your show at the Cinegrill. Oh, okay. After your show at the okay. Center Grill. And Bubba was working okay. with you and Bubba performed. And um, yeah, I was, I went to the show there. So after okay. that, I don't know when the first time on a casual meeting when I actually met you, you know, in, a, in a, just a casual meeting. I know you came to one of my shows in Indio, you know, in 2001, I think, or 2002 with RuPaul. But I, that's probably the most casual moment I had with you at that time. And you're, again, you were quiet because that's who you were. So is RuPaul. You guys were both quiet. But uh, you came to see Kenny Kerr's. Kenny Kerr was working for me in the show at the casino in Fantasy Springs, and you guys came out there. You know, I, I, when I was, I'm starting to do living room concerts out of my house here at Mom's house with the sound system and everything on Thursday night, and I, friends of mine were egging me on again. Larry Edwards, girl, you better get to singing that fabulous voice. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm too shy, <laughs> and so I. I feel sometimes I'm going to lose if I don't get over myself with this 
new world order of social media. My Thursdays in May, I had a May series and now I'm going to have a summer series because we're all going to have a second spike in the corona. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I <laughs> so what, what, so I started doing Thursday night shows and it's helped me to get over my shyness, even to the point of like, I'm, like, again, I'm not shy with a paying audience. I'm not shy. But if I have to like do something that re re requires opening my home up to the public and opening myself up to that social media thing, looking into the camera where you break the fourth wall, there is no fourth wall. It's like you and them. And it's like, hi, everybody, I'm Jimmy James. If you'll notice, you won't find any of that anywhere on the internet, like where I go, hi, everybody, I'm Jimmy James. Why don't you join me for blah, 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 blah? Because I can't do that. I feel so gross when I do that. <laughs> so there's nothing exists of me being like that. By performing, I've helped come out of my shyness to perform. And the fans have been so nice and supportive. I put up a tip jar my friend says, you have to charge them. I'm, going, I'm not charging anybody during this pandemic. He goes, well, at least put a tip jar. So I put a tip jar, meaning like the electronic tip jar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fans have been so kind, so sweet, and nothing like money to empower you. So <laughs> I'm coming out of my social media shyness. I mean, shyness is a real big problem, but I know that people like RuPaul and, and um, James Corden and a lot of people that you think are just so out there as performers are really very shy in person. Yeah, absolutely. Me, me being one how of them. Could, how could Michael Jackson be shy? How? Oh, you know? So I, I wanted to definitely get into your how Fashionista came about. So after, I'm assuming in your head, you've achieved this greatness of performing Marilyn and your other characters and i want you guys to google you know if you don't know who jimmy james is or has not heard him sing or his do his voices i'm not going to put him on the spot now but be sure afterwards you google him and look up some of his talents because he's really remarkable the talents that he has within and uh, he also eventually i'm assuming because you reached this creative peak that you wanted to do something else and that's when you started singing and recording original music when did that start i always wanted to do music because in my show, I'm fascinated by these great artists, Cher, Billie Holiday, Judy Garland, Betty, um, Elvis, and Barbara Streisand, all great, Karen Carpenter, Diana Ross, fascinated. I love these great artists, these great vocalists. And when you have a record that you can call your own, when you, because all these impersonations are, it's like the difference between renting or owning a house. So with Marilyn and all these impersonations, I'm just renting. But with Fashionista, I own the motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking own that shit. So people have to pay royalty. They have to pay, you know, licensing, things like that. And it's so, it's just such a good feeling that I accomplished something. And, you know, I know the older queens want to say, oh, why did you stop doing Marilyn? I'm like, I aged out, honey. I'm not 36 <laughs> anymore. And uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to go back in time. And on YouTube, if you add up all of my Marilyn videos and in terms of viewership, Marilyn and voices and everything, maybe it comes out to about a million. But for Fashionista, from fan-made videos around the world, is over 35 million views for Fashionista. So what would you do? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not going to give up the voices because I still love doing that and it's fun. So when did that if, come if, about? When if did Marilyn, I tell people, if Marilyn had 35 million views, Fashionista had a million. 
I'd have to think things over, but it doesn't, it's the opposite. It's the other way around. And so I never thought I would do anything that would uh, trump Marilyn, but in my own little way, I did something that's my own that as far as YouTube's concerned, trumped the Marilyn thing that I did, not the real one, but so the one I did. What year did this start where you started recording Fashionista? I started begging in 2004, and it was finally released October of 2006. It was two long years of, please, when are we putting this out? When it, you know, I, I wrote it around 2004, and then it took a long time to- and Did you produce it with people you knew, or did you have to pay somebody? Did you hire a producer, or how did the, the actual recording come about? The producer that I worked with for the one in many voices of Jimmy James, like my CD where I do all the voices, turns out, as fate would have it, he was a, a European dance music producer. I already knew him, but it was, I knew him for another project. And then turns out that he really knew his shit with dance music. And that's what I always wanted. I didn't want any Casio beats and, you know, I didn't <laughs> want any cheap dance music. I wanted hardcore, real fucking shit like for real i worked with european guys from uh austria and germany and at, at what point so it gets released in 2006 and when is yeah, the album the album jamestown gets released in 2006 and of course fashionista gets released as the single and it made it up as high as 13 on the billboard dance chart then in 2007 my friend calls me up and says, have you seen YouTube with your song? And I said, no. And so I went on YouTube and I'm like, my dream came true. Drag queens around the world were lip syncing to Fashionista. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, it's happened. My dream has happened. That little dream I had, a little vision of maybe someday, that someday was coming true. It's amazing. <laughs> so do you start, do you do some sort of dance tour with that album or do you just incorporate it into the impersonation shows? How do, well, what comes funny next? enough, I don't always get booked for Fashionista <laughs> uh, because I don't, um, they already play it before the shows and the Queens already do it at the shows. <laughs> so careful what you wish for. <laughs> I guess they don't need me. I don't know. <laughs> Um, sometimes I get hired to, to do Fashionista, sometimes. So once you, once the Marilyn Monroe tour ends, the Fashionista hype kind of drops down. And do you find yourself going out and seeing, are you a fan of drag shows? Do you go out and see other performers in drag? Besides, well, here's the thing. Besides Larry Edwards. Yeah, besides Larry <laughs> Edwards. Um, here's the thing, you know, I've, I've been immersed in the drag world and drag culture since I started. So now it's 37 years that like, so... I'll tell you, I don't, um, I'm a big fan of people who really do it live. Bianca Del Rio, incredible. Lady Bunny, amazing. Jackie Beat, brilliant. Justin Vivian Bond. Uh, you know, if I equate that to like the drag art, like Sylvester was like, he dabbled in and out of drag personas, kind of butch drag, femme drag, everything. I like all that. I, but if it's just a matter of just lip sync, I don't know. I just don't, I, I don't, does that sound ma bad? No, I mean, I, no, it doesn't at all. I mean, I, I don't go out and see shows myself, even though, you know, I produce the shows. It's very rare that I go out anymore unless I'm working on a bigger project. I might go out to. Right. Just to, but to, you're, uh, the shows scout. that you produce, but see, you're, pro you're producing shows that perhaps are people who have never seen a drag show. 
So they love they 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 love it because it's fresh and brand new to them and it's amazing. And of course your shows are amazing. For me and and, and your show is impersonation like so at least there's something going on. But if it's just a drag lip syncing, well, my father is on tour doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so so what is what is next for Jimmy? So you since we're down locked down this pandemic, uh, COVID nineteen, you're doing the online shows. And do you have any other other projects that you'd like to share with us that you're working on creatively? Well. Provincetown got canceled, so I'm not doing Provincetown anymore. So the whole summer, I'm going to do the summer series on Thursday night, uh, Jimmy James Hollywood, uh, facebook.com forward slash Jimmy James Hollywood, all one word. And that'll be a Thursdays uh, evenings. And I'm trying to go through my archives, and it's really hard to put uh, make a synopsis for uh, to work on a documentary of my Maryland years. I'm I'm trying to put that together but you know I'll tell you it's really kind of hard it's hard to look back I always want to look forward I want to you know I want to spend more time maybe working on more music but I know that I have to work on this documentary yeah no I think you know you know another reason why I want to do the podcast is that because I so so many people are, are up and coming and rising and I'll see my niece or I'll see someone you know the younger generation go oh my god have you seen this person they are amazing they're unbelievable, you know? And it's like, well, have you heard of this person? And they're like, who's that? Right. Who's that? You know, and it's just like, oh my gosh, some respect, please. Let's look at some of the people that actually well, were here far when the beyond. people in charge, but when the people in charge who could give a shout out to what came before, the pioneers who paved the way, when they don't mention the people who came before, like the Ken Burns documentary of country singers, they talk about, Dolly Parton will talk about the people who came before. They'll talk about the, the, the ones who paved the way. But in our business, it's unfortunate that the ones in charge, perhaps giving a shout out to the people from, that were the pioneers that paved the way, that they are completely not talked about. That's kind of unfair, I think. Yeah, I had an opportunity, you know, right or wrong or, you know, and and, and shady or not shady, you know, when I was 18, 19 years old, I walked into Lacage in West Hollywood. At that time, I never, ever imagined that 30 something years later, you know, 30 plus years later, that I'd be still involved with drag queens. Like, I just wanted to be George Michael and I wanted to be in that show, you know, and I had an right. opportunity decades later when I was doing a corporate event in Miami to go see Lou Pasioko. And even though I only knew him for a few weeks at that time, and Lou was, you know, the founder of, of Lacage. Uh, the uh, cabaret, uh, Le Cache Fall in West Hollywood, before it became the franchise that we know about, but with, mm -hmm. uh, with the producer that, will rename, producer that will rename Nameless. Right. Um, but so I told Lou, I, you know, and, and, you know, he passed away a few years after that, but I gave him the opportunity, and I gave myself the opportunity to tell him how much he inspired me and made an impression on me that I had no idea he was doing, you know, at the time. And I showed him some of my clips from the shows and he goes, and I, I know, I think you're familiar with my finale that was, you know, much embellished and became my, my signature close to my shows that was inspired by his closing. And he, of course, he goes, oh, I'd like you to give me a copy of that, please. <laughs> he, he wanted a copy of the finale because he wanted... Oh, yeah. <laughs> he oh, wanted... yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'll try. I'll try, Lou. But I go, I just wanted you to see that because you really inspired me. And these are all the shows I've done decades later. And yeah. It was a good feeling, yeah. right or wrong. But I mean... 
I mean, he definitely paved the way for me and inspired me. And I never realized if I had to go back at that time, mm-hmm. I never would have ever thought I'd be doing dealing with drag queens 30 plus years later. <laughs> <laughs> so another reason <laughs> just to celebrate, you know, our careers and what we've all, you know, it's such a small family, you know, the veterans and we all, I, I, you know, some of the people I've interviewed and sometimes never met, I'm closer to you than some of the others I've, I've interviewed, but it's, um, you know, We've known each other, but we, I've never had a chance to find out your story. And that was the reason. So I thank you for that, Jimmy. Oh, sure. And I thank you for Marilyn. Is just If you guys never had a chance to see Jimmy as Marilyn Monroe, it's absolutely breathtaking. And, he's a, and of course, his one-man show, his voices are amazing. So please check out uh, facebook.com forward slash Jimmy James Hollywood. And uh, you to learn more about Jimmy James or just Google J- Jimmy James. And still, no one has had a billboard like that. Maybe RuPaul, <laughs> I guess, in Times Square. <laughs> so you can look up that too, Jimmy James <laughs> Times Square billboard. But thank you, Jimmy. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for spending time with me. All right, darling. Thank you. It's nice talking to you. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. And remember, you all, my restaurant and entertainment venue, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs, where entertainment is on hold currently per COVID restrictions. But we are serving some great food most weekends, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. For a lovely meal and a lovely atmosphere, check out my restaurant, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs. We'll see you all there. Thank you for listening to Icon's Incredible Creation on Stage podcast hosted by Dan Gore. If you would like to know more about our wonderful host, follow Dan Gore at facebook.com slash lookalikes and at Oscars Downtown Palm Springs. If you enjoyed what you heard, hit subscribe and leave us a review. A new podcast every other week. Until then, have an iconic day.